And the talk tonight is about love and wisdom. And I just want to check if you can hear me all right. It's um, kind of serendipitous that on my way here and um, this afternoon while I was working on this talk, uh, there's a family of skunks that live near where I'm staying. And um, I grew up about an hour from here and I have a special love of um, painted turtles. And the turtles... Around here, the painted turtles are having a hard time. Um, they're not having an easy time at all surviving. Um, and so this time of year, usually a little earlier, the, the, the turtles come out of the pond and lay their eggs right around where I stay. And uh, I just happened to look out of the window, and the skunks were digging up the eggs and eating them. And so my talk might not be super organized <laughs> because I kept getting up to uh, chase the skunks away the whole time I was <laughs> working on the talk. <laughs> and it emerged into a love and wisdom talk because I figured it was wisdom to try to keep working on the talk, uh, even though the love was winning out in terms of trying to help the turtles and to care about the skunks. So there is that great paradox right there all afternoon. Love and wisdom. There's a great teacher um, from India, Srinazar Gadada Maharaj, uh, that said, love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And I've always felt that that, um, if you can remember one thing in life, that would be it. And mostly, I think, um, human beings tend to love the, the first one. Love tells me I'm everything. We tend to go, yeah. And then wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and we're like... Well, wait a minute. You know, but to, to actually have that sense, um, there are some people actually who prefer wisdom tells me I'm nothing. So it doesn't all um, equal out with us. But what's being said is they're both equally imper- important. And I think that if you're connected with someone or something you love, that in terms of the wisdom practice, um, when you love something and care about it, or somebody, um, of course you wish them well. You wish them to be happy and free of as much pain as possible and to thrive. Uh, But the wisdom side tells us that we can offer that up and take care so much, but um, ultimately things are as they are. 
that we can't control everything. We do our best, and the wisdom tells us um, that we need to also be disenchanted with how things are. There was a great um, writer, C.S. Lewis. A lot of us know know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. But he was a very um, intense intellectual uh, from England, went to Oxford, wrote wrote there, and uh, fell in love very late in life. And he fell in love with a woman from New York City, and she had a young son. And when he came over to, she, she moved to England. And very soon after her and her son moved uh, to England, she got cancer and eventually died very quickly. And he wrote something that I think is so beautiful because uh, he was so beside himself where he finally dared to have the courage to get out of his head <laughs> and really connect and love, love unabashedly Um, and he wrote why love when it hurts so much to lose it and and again I think that that's the crux of being a human being that we 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 need to learn to love unabashedly and be willing to, to lose it again and again that that's the paradox we tend to want one or the other, right? If we, we want to be able to connect with whatever, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, ever, anyone, anything, anybody, any place, the earth. But we want to be able to control it. So of course we need love and wisdom, or the love will um, just, as we know, when with family and dear ones, we love them so much, and it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard to love them without the wisdom, because you know they're just not controllable. <laughs> they didn't put out the garbage again to the compost, right? You know, they didn't do the dishes. It's very basic, you know. Everyone's supposed to have their job, and they don't always do it. <laughs> Real basic, just how do, you, how do we live with each other? Well, we need both. Love and wisdom. That ability to connect, but also realize we can't control. But we try. Srina Zargadatta also said, uh, which I also appreciate a lot, that it's affectionate awareness that brings reality into focus. Affectionate awareness. Not just awareness, not just affection, but that, that again, that when you, when you uh, practice the mindfulness without any of the Brahma-viharas that we've been offering, often it can become a cold observation. I had a friend who um, practiced Vipassana for 20 years. This is many years ago. But eventually uh, we offered him the loving-kindness practice. And he said um, it felt like he'd been standing out in the sun for 20 years but never felt its warmth. Ugh. 
so important. So the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, or appreciative joy, and equanimity are all um, infused with wisdom. So I'll go into this as we go along in the talk, but just to remember that our kind of conventional understanding of love, our compassion, our empathetic joy or equanimity, we don't always realize that they're, they're infused with wisdom. It's what makes the love unconditional. So it's unconditional love, unconditional compassion, unconditional appreciative joy or gratitude, unconditional acceptance. The fourth un- unconditional acceptance is peace. I, uh, there's a um, a great quotation from the third Zen patriarch uh, in the Zen tradition, and it said that uh, the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences, and that's a fairly recent translation. It used to be for those who um, cease to have preferences, but this. This rather new translation is so so much better. It's it's the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences. So again, there there's that balance again. It's that that gentleness with. Of course, we have preferences. Of course, I didn't want the skunk to dig up the turtle eggs <laughs> that I just saw lay them. You know, it's like of course, but it did. It did dig them up. It's the fact of it. So that's what we're working with again and again. It's in the wisdom practice, we just keep uncovering what we want to be have happening. We don't really want to be sleepy again in the sitting or whatever. It's like you face that, of course, of course I don't want that. But then the fact is we are sleepy at that moment. So it's it's that realignment with the affectionate awareness brings that reality into focus, the truth into focus. It's um, acceptance doesn't mean necessarily agreement or condoning how things are. This is really important. It's, it's accepting the fact of how things are, not that we ag- agree with how the universe is designed. I think very few of us would agree with it or condone it, except when it's all going our way, which isn't all the time for most people. There are um, <clears throat> two very different kinds of concentration uh, that are kind of standard and um, maybe overgeneralized in the meditation world, but, but they're called fixed concentration and momentary concentration. And they're very important to understand, uh, and they're very simple. So fixed concentration would be like if the room was dark, we turned out the lights, it's nighttime, uh, 
and we put one candle up in front of the room. And the meditation instruction would be just keep staring at the candle. And if any, any sensation in the body called your attention, you would ignore it and bring your attention to the candle. If a, an emotion happened, you ignore it, repress it, go to the candle. I think you get the idea. If there's a sound, if there's a breath, if your attention gets called anywhere else, you ignore it, repress it, you come back to the candle. That is one very um, important and popular way of practicing meditation. And the goal of that kind of practice is uh, tranquility, uh, oneness, one-pointedness, oneness, and bliss. And the bliss is um, very important to understand that's the goal. And I'm going to describe the opposite, and you'll understand it in, in, in seconds. So what the Vipassana practice is momentary concentration. You're learning to have the attention um, flow along with life as it's alive and life as, as it's moving. And as we know, like we don't want the breath to stop. Right? <laughs> we want things to be alive. We want to be alive. But the price of it is movement. It can't stay still or it will die. So everything is moving. Sound, sight, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, emotions. It's like it's just this wildness of change. And so the, sorry, <clears throat> the practice is one of, we, we will offer, of course, the anchor. The anchor is a small area to go to, to stabilize, to rest from that wildness. It's like going into a domesticated garden. And you cultivate that ability to anchor somewhere, as we said, to stabilize. But it's not, it's, the anchor is still moving. It's not fixed concentration. You're learning how to be with a small area that's moving so that you can let go of the attention sometimes and just go for the ride. How things are. <clears throat> so the goal of that practice is wisdom. Learning how to be with life as it is. And and the goal is a very deep contentment, a deep acceptance of how things are, and peace. Uh, So when you look at these, you know, overgeneralized two styles of practice, um, why one leads to bliss would be because you're ignoring everything. (laughs) You really do try to make it stop. And it's usually what people want when they come to meditate. I did. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I, was, I just wanted everything to stop. You know, and I got myself into a totally opposite situation. I got myself into Vipassana. And it was like, you know, this is meant to be more and more inclusive. Less and less repression. But careful. As we talked about this morning, you learn how to go into things and when you're not protected by the mindfulness or the metta compassion, you move away and you rest the attention with the momentary segments. It's like, again, going into a domesticated garden and resting and then going back out to where perhaps a bear will walk by. 
or a skunk will dig up the turtle eggs or whatever, or fear will come or, you know, whatever. So that um, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. The way we're offering the teachings is to help us um, cultivate and access both. And eventually, over time, they start to become seamless. They start, you learn to kind of access them. The attention, rather than being cold when doing <clears throat> the wisdom practice, it starts to have that affectionate awareness in it sometimes. You can't make it happen, but you access it more. And when you do the loving kindness, compassion, uh, empathetic joy, equanimity practice, uh, that there's a the warmth of it and the feeling of love, interconnectedness, but without the control, without the need to control it. <clears throat> so the wisdom practice... Um, One of the questions yesterday about, you know, why are we picking a small area and staying with it? Uh, The idea is that if you, and Jesse's been talking about it as well, it's like when we connect our attention to anything alive and it's moving, it requires enough concentration, enough of this uh, momentary concentration. So typically it's called aim, sustain, I like to sometimes call it connect, commit. It depends on what word is helpful for you. It doesn't matter. But that being able to connect the attention, commit through the life of a sound, or the breath, or fear, or happiness. It's like that ability to connect the attention. We, We try to offer anchors that are easy. But the idea is that you can um, then be with the beginning, middle, end of anger. Right? It's like the, it's the same technique. It's just that it's hard for us to do that. Really hard. But if you do connect and commit through anything, the, what we start to notice is that <clears throat> there are three truths of existence. And what they mean by that characteristic of existence means that it's the same for a skunk or a turtle or a guardian angel, or a human. It's the same for anything that takes birth. will have these truths that they have to face, which is that if you're alive and everything's moving, that it's impermanent. And then because everything is impermanent, it's not dependable or reliable, ultimately. And then the third, anatta, Again, we could go into these forever, but that sense of uncontrollability, insubstantiality. It means that if you really take a look at the breath, it's pretty unsubstantial. Or if you look at a sound or an emotion or anything, it, it, it's pretty hollow. Yet we give it such weight gravity. We think it it refers back to a me or I or mine. You know, one of the basic things we're trying to offer is that we steward our body, we take birth in our body, 
but it's really made up of earth, air, fire, and water. And we borrow water. We borrow earth, we borrow air, we borrow fire to be alive. But it's, it's always changing. And yet we think there's a solid, separate me. But if you even look at um, when we eat, you take food in, it comes out. When it comes out, is that you? These are really important questions. They might sound funny. But when you cut your nails and they fall on the ground, what happened to you? Well, it wasn't you in the first place. It never was. It's just borrowed. If we're connected to these truths, we're protected and safe. And when we're not connected to them, we're fighting how things are. And there's no peace. So the, I think of the, um, facing this paradox of connecting and committing, but learning we don't have to be um, enchanted with it because it will change. It's that that, that paradox um, is what matures us, that, that just the consistent, when we can have the courage to face, that if we're going to connect with the truth of something, it will change. Uh, there's such deep contentment and peace in that. And there are ways when in Vipassana practice... Um, there's a gradual lower of expectation. And that, that's so wise. It's like when you're with a friend or you're with a breath or you're with a skunk, you know, whatever you're with, it's like um, that ability to lower the expectation because expectation kills connection. And I don't use that word lightly. When you're with yourself or with another being, if you have that agenda, if you have an agenda with that being, if you have expectation, you're not going to connect. So it's learning that when you learn how to do this with a breath or a sound or your own um, emotional world, then you can help anyone with that. If you know how to be with your fear, you can help anybody be with their fear. And we can't be interested, say, aversion or anger does appear, we can't be interested in it if we don't accept it. So there's, there again, there's the peace. It's like you can't, nothing becomes workable if, if we're not accepting it because we're not interested in it and we're not interested in how life is. We want peace so bad, but we don't want to face when we're not peaceful. 
That only way to peace is being able to face when we're fighting how things are. And it's really when you have enough equanimity, that acceptance, it's like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Oh, it's just wanting. It, we don't have to buy into it. Or ha, 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 it's just aversion or fear. We don't have to buy into it. And we can literally let it pass through like a cloud passes through the sky. It's not ours. It's not me. It's not mine. If it was ours, if thoughts were ours, we could control them. If emotions were ours, we could control them. If our body was controllable, I could look in the mirror and still look 22. (laughs) It's not happening. (laughs) It's just gravity's winning out. You know, it's like amazing. Of course I wouldn't mind controlling that. But, it, you know, it's like this is, what, this is about ceasing to cherish the preference. Accepting that we're human. Accepting that we have emotions. Accepting that we have thoughts. As Jesse said this morning, we're not trying to have a lobotomy. We don't cut off our ear to, like, be free with sound. You don't cut out your eyes to be free with sight. You don't get rid of emotion to be free of emotion. But that's how we act. Because we haven't considered it. It's only because we haven't considered it. And also because it's hard to, <laughs> to be human and be free. Or you'd see a lot more of them walking around. And often, you know, we, we're either trying too hard and we get frustrated and disappointed or we relax too much and we give up. You know, it's just that it's finding that place of just... It's, if you remember when you learned to ride a bicycle, uh, you know how much you fell off, but you really wanted to ride the bicycle. And this is so much harder. And this is like if you really want to be a true human being, a mature human being. You really want to make use of this lifetime. It's much harder than learning to ride a bicycle. And you'll fall off a lot. You'll fall into that doubt. Doubt happens because we believe we should have been able to control something. But don't take my word for it. Check it out. But it's so hard if something painful happens and we can't be with it or we thought we thought we should have been able to avoid it somehow. We blame ourselves or others. And, you know, it's like, ah, oh, it's so painful. We try too hard and then we'll say, well, this isn't for me. But we're still stuck with being alive. I told this story uh, the last retreat, but I love it so much. You know, I used to teach. Um, I've had many jobs, and one of them once was uh, learning how uh, teaching learning disabilities. I often get jobs that I'm not trained in, and I have to um, learn it as I go. Uh, so I wasn't trained in it, and I learned it as I went. But um, I used to go around to different schools in Northern Maine and um, bring the kids out of the classroom that weren't adjusting well for one reason or, or another. Uh, and it was kind of a um, very rural uh, 
lots of poverty, uh, very difficult conditions. And I, when I would walk up to the classroom, after a while the kids started wanting to come with me. And I'd, I'd go there and I'd get to the door and the teachers really didn't like me as much as the kids did. And the kids all started going, take me, take me. And I'd be like, shh, shh. I felt like they were starting to want to have learning disabilities so they could go off with me. It was really uh, getting hard. Um, So one day, the kindergarten started, and this the sweetest, most sweet girl, like she had long hair, and she was having trouble um, in school. Um, So she went up to the teacher. I was standing there, and she went up to the desk, and, you know, they're little. And the desk was big, and the teacher was big, and... She went, Miss so-and-so, Miss, I don't think I like school. And she said, that's tough luck, Melissa. you got 12 more years of it. <laughs> and she looked at me like, oh, my God. You know, a kindergartner can't even imagine the end of the day, right? <laughs> 12 years, and she, it's really 13, right? That's kindergarten. you still got... You got 13, you were, you know, and that's, (laughs) and she just looked like so defeated. It was so painful, you know. But that's how life is. (laughs) It's tough luck, you know. You're either going to, you know, figure it out or you're going to be fighting it. And fighting it, it's so, it's really the same. (laughs) It's true. It's longer. <laughs> if you're lucky, <laughs> it gives you more time to figure it out. <laughs> but we're here to learn. You know, we're not taught that we're here to learn. And we're not given the tools. These are the tools to explore, to learn, to not take our word for it. This is the kind of quiet and peacefulness that can happen with the wisdom side. It's a poem by, um, they're called Cold Mountain Poems, Hanshan. It was written over 1,200 years ago. And this poet, um, he wrote his poems on stone walls, not on paper. A lot were lost. Once I moved to Cold Mountain, everything was at rest. No more useless, mixed-up thinking. In idleness, I write my poems on stone walls, accepting whatever happens like an untied boat. That's so quiet, peaceful, rare. In the wisdom practice, you start to face that the the Buddha said that there's a stream of dissatisfaction running through the human thought process. And so if if you understand that that's how it is, that we tend to think, well, that wasn't quite good enough. Right, you know that the food it could have been a little better or whatever. It's like that walk could have been a little better. That step, maybe we can improve it. Or the breath. It's it's just that it's just how 
how much of today felt totally acceptable and so there and we and it's it's the way it is we tend to start seeing it and we think we should change it rather than getting that we don't have to change it you just let that happen and then you you, you, you just have the patience to wait and just see that actually there's another landscape where it's good enough. It's good enough. And it, it's like learning that most of the human thought stream will be that it's not good enough and you can just accept that that's how it is. Judging, 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 judging. We're like judging machines, you know, and we're good at it. And just it's just judging. You don't have to buy into it. My favorite place to practice it is with the shoes out there in the, in the shoe room because you can just walk by and just look at all the shoes and just when you look, there will be a judgment. You can marry somebody just by looking at their shoes, you know, and you don't like that person with their shoes. It's just how we are. It's funny. It is. It's funny. Like, you can just... Um, you know, there'll be people you want to meet at the end of this retreat and you'll start talking with them and you have this whole fantasy about them and it's not real at all. And you might have someone you didn't like and you start talking with them and they're great. And it, you start to see that you're running again on this automatic pilot and knee-jerk, knee-jerk reactions, conditioning, projection and none of it is real. And so that's what's, that's what's killing connection, is that judgment, agenda, expectation. And then you're just with somebody, and it's usually good enough. When it's just enough, it's like when we eat. It's the, probably the best place to see it is when we eat, because you're trying to just taste that food and swallow it but your head so we never feel full we never feel satisfied because there's that that possibility of just chewing, tasting, swallowing and it's um, just enough we've received it and you can learn a lot through eating just like with a breath have we received it do you get to the point where you die and you haven't even received many breaths I hope not Albert Einstein, um, when he was riding a bike at age 16, saw the sunbeam and he asked himself what it would be like to ride on one of those sunbeams. So he imagined chasing the sunbeam and um, riding it to the edge of the universe. And that's how he discovered the theory of relativity. Uh, And he said... When asked about that, he said, I very rarely think in words at all. A thought comes, and I may try to express it in words afterwards. And, you know, this is that non-conceptual reality that we're offering, that, you know, the, if we're just believing all the thoughts that are happening, there's no possibility for that kind of way of being. There's no space. 
We're not including. We're only including the thought about the experience, which isn't the experience. The other half of the talk is about the Brahma-viharas. I'll try. So just to sum up the wisdom part, it's like as you learn how to be mindful of a sound and include that in your repertoire, then you can maybe be with the breath and then maybe with your hands and then your whole body and then emotion, thought. You can't start with being including everything all at once. We don't have the training. But if you can do it with one thing, you can do it with another thing, and then another thing. And then you might try it with eating, or you might try it with taking a shower. So you just you add in, you pace it, and you add in a little more and a little more, very gradually, or it's too hard. The loving-kindness practice, the compassion, the empathetic joy, equanimity. I wanted to talk about them a little bit because um, they're so important. And they're also the other side of um, how we navigate life. So the loving-kindness is, um, again, these are not things that we make up or try to make happen. There's something we start to learn how to access. So if, if you have access to one of these, um, we teach all four because some people don't connect with the first three and they only connect with the equanimity. Or some people might just connect with compassion. So if you only learn loving-kindness... It leaves out a lot of people. So if you connect with one of these, then we'll encourage you to do that a lot and strengthen it and not feel like um, you have to do all four. So the friendliness, the kindness, um, we were teaching this as a kind of quiet abiding. We try to offer the Brahma-viharas as an option without the phrases. They've been taught with phrases, 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 but we're trying to offer them also non-conceptually. Practice, a practice of non-conceptual loving-kindness, for example. And the experience that seems so much like this, but isn't <clears throat> unconditional, uh, is any kind of uh, romantic love, attached love, um, sentimentality, nostalgia. And just as I say this, I have to just clarify that that doesn't mean they're bad or wrong. The translations of these are difficult because the translation of, of the experience that seems so much like without conditional love but is conditional, um, it's called the near enemy. But what we, when I'm saying nostalgia isn't unconditional love, it doesn't mean nostalgia is bad. It means that it just isn't metta. And this is really important. That's all it, that's all it means. And so the loving kindness has that, 
I'll love you. It's not I'll love you if you brush your hair this morning, or I'll love you if you say the right thing all the time, or I love myself if I'm perfect. Or that's that's not what metta is. Unconditional love is not um, getting involved in the behavior. And it's really the Buddha taught that the experience is like um, when a mother cow gives birth to her baby cow and makes eye contact. Pretty intense. I usually shift that to the uh, father or mother cow, but it's like that moment of a newborn and making eye contact. It's that feeling of like, of course you wish them well. And and you're trying to find that connection with yourself, the person next to you, the person in the back of the hall, the neighbor down the street, the skunk, the turtle. It's like without the behavior, it's just that, that felt sense of this being, their heart, you know, that newborn heart. And to remember that the newborn heart is taking birth every moment. We all have a newborn heart every moment. Because every moment is changing. And you know, what what I appreciate so much about this is that what we're trying to do with this practice is touch into that, connect with that newborn heart in all of us. Because that's the truth. And the opposite of loving-kindness is anger. And we all know um, when we're blaming ourselves or blaming others or blaming the universe, we feel really far away, separate. There was a great teacher, Maya Baba, who said um, when um, two people are fighting and angry with each other, um, you know, they, they feel so distant from each other. And when two people are in love, they speak very softly, whisper, or they don't use any words at all. The compassion, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. The compassion practice is orienting this connection with the heart, finding the heart, the mind, um, and orienting it toward any pain in the world, like any pain in your body, heart, mind, past, present, or future. In yourself or others. And so it's, it's this ability to, to find this awareness that's not drowning in it, but not indifferent. It's not disconnected. It's, and it's a practice. You practice connecting with pain and drowning. Or, and the drowning is, you, if you connect with it and you drown, that there's that near enemy. The experience that seems so much like compassion but isn't is grief or pity or sorrow. Now again, I clarified that doesn't mean that grief or pity or sorrow are wrong. Are bad. In fact, I usually find compassion through going through grief. That's often the, the way it happens for me. So you you practice it. You usually, like as I said the other day, if like, if my hand here was a pussy, bloody mess, 
and this right hand is compassionate awareness. It's kind of coming along, sees it. It's the willingness to connect. (laughs) Get too far, you get disconnected, indifferent, you know, you get a little afraid. You, it's, you can't think of this as like static, like it's going to be, I'm going to be compassionate and it's going to stay a certain way. It's like you, how you learn is by going too far and then going in too close and drowning with everything. Like today, I can give you an example. I started siding with the turtle and I started getting angry at the skunk, you know, and I'm trying to write a talk. <laughs> You know, and it's like, this is just how we are. But it's like I had to go back to the compassion and, and then we'll get to the equanimity, but to care about both. But I still took action. I went out and shooed the skunk away because I'm concerned that the turtles are going to go extinct. So, you know, it's like that. It's always finding that balance of what's motivating us. Is it, is it aversion to the skunk? Or is it compassion for everyone? I know they're having a pretty good time right now where they're living. There's a whole skunk family. They're eating. They're having a great time. I knew I didn't have to protect them at this point in time. So the opposite of compassion is cruelty. And we might hear that and think, oh, I'm not cruel, but just listen to yourself for 10 minutes when you're sitting there and you'll see cruelty. We just find it hard to accept pain. We have some physical pain and we're going to want to get rid of it. We have some emotional pain, we want to get rid of it. We have some mental pattern, we want to get rid of it. That's cruelty. That's like not having any wish for a relationship with that part of your body. Often the places that are the most painful are, the, are sacrificial areas. They're the parts of us that have been trying to protect us because our mind wasn't strong enough. And it just it's taken the hit. And then we, we feel it, we sit down, we, we have a couple days of practice, we feel that place that's tightened to protect us and we hate it. We have, we have some fear come up and that's trying to protect us from the pain and we hate it. Compassion is a great practice. Caring about it. It's such a pleasant feeling of caring about it. Now I wish I could put it in the curriculum for all kindergartens. That's for sure. And then appreciative joy. You know, some people, they hear the first two, they're not connecting. You get to mudita and it's, it's orienting your heart being uh, toward the joy in the world, toward the pleasure in the world, and appreciating it. Now, some people don't even feel worthy of that. You know, it's not just when we shut down, you know, like a flower bud. We don't just to pick and choose that we're going we're gonna to close down to pain and open to pleasure. It doesn't work like that. When we close, we close down to everything. When we open, we open to everything. 
if you open to a little pleasure, pain's going to be there at some point to open to because the world is just a mix of pleasure and pain. So you orient this heart toward the pleasure, joy in the world, and you appreciate it instead of getting hooked or addicted or attached. Now this again, you know, wish we had it in kindergarten. You know, just think about it, how much we need to learn how to be able to open to pleasure, appreciate it, but let it pass. And just not need people to yield up pleasure all the time. Heaven forbid somebody frowns at us, right? The experience that seems so much like this appreciative joy is over-exuberance, over-enthusiasm. You know, it's like getting higher and higher and higher and getting more and more attached to it and not being able to bear coming down. Or somebody you know kind of wins the lottery and you're feeling happy for them for a while and then you're thinking, hmm wonder if they're going to share with me. <laughs> That's shifting out of the unconditional, right? You know, and it, it's, again, I'm not saying those are right or wrong. It's not, it's not these aren't wrong. They're, they're human, and that's what happens. But we're saying that that isn't this mudita, or appreciative joy, without, with, with the wisdom in it. And the opposite is envy or jealousy. And the, the often with envy or jealousy, we're wanting somebody's goodness. Or they're wanting our goodness. More to be said about that. And then equanimity, upeka. It's a very, it's a deep, unconditional acceptance of how things are. Again, it's not condoning, it's the fact of it. And if you accept the fact of something, it becomes something you can work with. The experience that seems so much like it, and this is, this is important, I wanted to get here in enough time, that seems so much like equanimity, this, this peace, is indifference, or passivity, or denial, or naivete. This is so important, especially in the spiritual world. No matter where you are in the spiritual world, it'll look like people are pretending that they're actually accepting and peaceful, but they're they're just pretending. And and we're all good at it. You know, we you know you can't make it through kindergarten without getting an Academy Award for pretending things are okay. You can't make it in life if you're not pretending things are okay. But it's indifferent. The heart has become closed off. And it's helpful. I say this, people tend to cringe, but the more we allow ourselves to go numb or to not care, the more we can care. If you can accept that the system, the heart is just like the iris of the eye. It's opening and closing. And we need to have that same flexibility. If things become too much, we need to be able to shut it down a bit and recover and rest. Distract. The opposite of this, in, you know, equanimity, 
this heart that's connected um, but not reacting is, is the opposite, is reacting to the joy and sorrow or pleasure and pain in the world with aversion and attachment. The, 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 rather than having the ability to connect and be mindful, be interested, accept, we're, we're, we're pushing away pain or withdrawing from pain and holding on to pleasure. And because the truth is, is that the pain has appeared or the pleasure is past, we're actually out of harmony with how things are when we're fighting. And remembering that doesn't mean that they're bad or wrong. They're just not peace. I might go a little over time, but um, one way that you can see that we're trying to offer the Brahma Viharas, these four, they're called divine homes, um, is if you had an empty glass and you had a pitcher of water and you, you start filling the glass with water and you just keep pouring and pouring, eventually the water spills out. And that's, that's more like how the Buddha taught these practices. That It's like you're, you're just f- filling yourself up, filling it up, and then eventually it spills out. And I, I've seen it. I just have to say. I've had friends that... I have a friend who... She was put in a convent when she was 17 by her dad, a Catholic convent, was a nun for 16 years. Um married a priest they both were kicked out of course of the, the church and married and uh, they had three kids uh, and she said to me she never she took vows of poverty her whole you know adult life and she never knew poverty until she got married and had three kids and then I was trying to help her learn how to do the metta practice and she had so much self-hatred because she couldn't feel it for her husband and she couldn't feel it for her kids. And here she'd been a nun and she had all this judgment. And um, I said, well, what can you feel it for? And I said, you know, tell me next week. And she said, I can feel it for my cat. And she thought that wasn't good enough. But it's like I had her stay with her cat for years and years. And eventually it spilled over. But she had to go at that pace. It's like, and that, it worked. And see, this is very pragmatic. It's, it's not like you create this ideal of how it should work. It will never work that way. You have to find how it works for you and have the patience to stay with it. But I can assure you, it's natural. It'll, it's just like pouring water. It'll eventually spill out. Like, like, and some people actually have to start with all beings in the farthest part of the universe. That's where they feel safe. They couldn't possibly do an individual little being. They have to pick all beings. That's what works for them. So rather than think, oh, it's better to be able to do this way, that way, it's much more to find out, well, how does it work for us? So that's the Brahma Vihara side, the love side. 
the wisdom side, um, I had a teacher, Sayadaw Pandita, who described the mindfulness practice almost the opposite. He described it as a, um, like having a, a big bellied vase with a long, long, narrow neck and that you have a pitcher of water and you're pouring it in and every once in a while a drop gets in. <laughs> you have an insight and that it's all spilling out, right? And then another drop will get in and that that's how the wisdom practice unfolds. And I think, you know, water's an amazing uh, metaphor. My first, one of my first teachers here, Tangpu Sayadaw from Burma, who came here after spending 33 years practicing in a cave, he said to me, uh, keep a mind like water, not like a rock, but like water. And there again is that flowing aliveness, right? The, not the static, but to, to remember to keep it soft and flexible like water. So why I wanted to um, just emphasize uh, the the indifference is because when we hear acceptance, we often think that means we're not, we, we don't have to work toward changing anything. And that's not what this means at all. So equanimity and peace doesn't mean indifference. In fact, the compassion is all about caring about the pain in the world and doing our best in the face of it to help. And I, I just wanted to offer, it's, when I was a kid, by the time I was three, my older sister at eight, she loved gangs, really hardcore gangs. And our house, you know, there was a lot of problems. And we just, I grew up with gangs through to probably till I was 28. And um, there were always too many people to save, like kids. There were so many kids and so much pain. Um, so I had some kids, that nieces and nephew, that I, I felt like I had to rescue at starting at age 11. But there were always these kids that were I couldn't, uh, and I felt my limitation even at 11 with that. Um, and there was this one kid that uh, he was always around, not being neglected, not being helped, treated badly. And one day he was crying in the corner. And I went up to him and I said, you know, I feel so bad. I'm not going to be able to help you like I'd like, um, but what can I help you right now? And he said, uh, I just want some SpaghettiOs. <laughs> He's like, all I want is some SpaghettiOs. And so I, I didn't even have a license then, but I drove a car, of course, <laughs> and got some SpaghettiOs and brought them back and heated them up for him. And um, I did that a number of times. That's all I could do. But I did. And then um, many years later, he found me. And he had been in prison, of course. That was, that was what happened to most of these people. And um, he said, 
every day that I was in prison, I would think of you giving me those spaghettios and how much like that meant to me. And it helped me get through every day in prison. And I had no idea. And I, I didn't do it for any big thing. It was just like, that's what, that's what I... That's what we should do, right? Like, it's like anything noble to do, anything worth doing, whether it's getting fully awake or, you know, trying to save the planet or trying to help people in any way, um, it requires this, not the motivation of aversion or attachment, because that always leads to burnout. Because we can't save everything, but we can keep trying ourselves and others. So there's that sense that, getting the sense that when you make a full commitment to be with the beginning, middle, end of a breath and sustain it through that, that's the same as sustaining through maybe you're trying to stop hunger. It's the same thing. You connect and sustain. And it's, you, you make the full effort because you're so, that's how we do it. That's the, it's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do. But without any attachment to the result of the effort. That's freedom. That helps us not get burnt out. And if you're motivated just by anger, of course we get angry. But you wait and you see that you can be motivated by compassion. And if you're getting frustrated with how things are, because Lord knows the world can be very frustrating um, and we want it to be better than it is and we want everybody to be better than we are. But you just keep doing your best and you, make, you have that sense again and again. It's, you make the effort, you make the commitment because it's the right thing to do, but without attachment to the result of your effort. That's the maturing of the human heart. And it's worth doing. And it's, it's like so joyous. Let's sit for a minute. Love tells me I'm everything, and wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. So it's time, lovely night for walking practice and then the metta chants it together. <laughs> 